from Galatians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Nevertheless, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is holy. From the beginning of his earthly story, we see that he was more than just a man. He was something or someone else. A man named Joseph was awakened in the night by an angel. This angel promised him that the young girl he was engaged to was pregnant with a supernatural child. The angel said, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. On the night this baby was born, there were shepherds warming themselves by their fire as their flock slept along the hillside. Suddenly, the dark night was split in two and the sky was filled with otherworldly beings, an angelic, majestic crowd filling the atmosphere, all proclaiming that Jesus was born. He was both a baby, but also the savior of the whole world. God's glory was being made known through him. You see, from the moment God wrapped himself in flesh and entered our world, it was proclaimed that something holy was now among us who are earthly. God's fullness was in him, and it's this very holiness that brings us to proclaim, Jesus is over us. Our kids can be dismissed. We want to welcome you to uh, Community Christian Church. Glad you are here at the 11, uh, 9 o'clock service. I don't know what service I'm at, so I'm glad that you know. Hey, um, how many Princess Bride fans do we have in the room? Wonderful. Then you'll recognize this clip. Go ahead. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Fun boy. Polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to me. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come boy. Fetch me that picture. Thank you.
Hold on, hold on. Is this a kissing movie? Is that what's going on here? You tricked me. Hey, welcome to our CIY Move series. Uh, this is a series that we started doing a few years ago. I love when we do this every year because it ramps us up to our fundraiser meal. That, that meal will be this year on March the 3rd. And what we do is we kind of take the Move Week that our high school students experienced last summer. We repackage it a little bit so that you can experience it too. Joel just talked about that. And, and the theme last summer was nevertheless, okay? And it's taken from Galatians chapter 2, 20, which is a springboard that we get to use, a verse, take it that, to explore what the gospel is, the, which is the good news about Jesus, what the gospel is all about and what it means for us. And so last week, Joel started us, started us off with this first principle of the gospel message. We are undeserving. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us. Jesus is for you, period. End of sentence, full stop. It's not he's for you if. It's not he's for you if you get your act together, if you measure up, if you can pull your weight, if you clean up the mess you made, if you pray all the time. It's none of that. There's no if. He is for you without qualification. And we need to hammer that in if we're going to make sense of this thing called the gospel. He loves you. He is for you. And he will do whatever it takes. He is the only one in your life who comes forward and says, as you wish. And this week, we're going to explore just what it was that he had to do because he loves us so much. And so we're going to take a couple of phrases in our main text, Galatians 2.20, and see this, that we want control. Nevertheless, Jesus is over us, okay? And so here's the idea that we'll slow down uh, for as we pass it by. Uh, a couple of phrases. The first is this, Christ lives, Christ lives. Now, it might seem odd to just pluck that little phrase out of this well-traveled verse, but it is everything. It tells us something very basic, but it's so critical to the story. It's not rocket science here. The line tells us that Jesus lived. Jesus lived on this earth. We can put it this way. Jesus is wholly a man, wholly a man. Just a few lines from this one, later in this book of Galatians, Paul will describe this part of Jesus' story in more detail. He'll write it this way in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son to be born of a woman. Now, we've just come through the Christmas season, right? Some of us are getting the bills from the Christmas season, right? And uh, if you go back to that story that we cover every year, a young teenager named Mary is visited by an angel. And the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, you'll bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And she says, hold up, hold on. That is quite impossible because I know how these things work biological, biologically, and I've never done what that would take. And the angel says, here's the thing. Um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The 
power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The first principle of the gospel of the story of Jesus is that he is the God of the universe who came to the earth and wrapped himself in human flesh as an infant. Jesus is wholly a man. Now, one of the most intriguing things that, uh, about the life of Jesus, and, and we miss this as we, as we go through the story, it's very easy to miss, is that he slyly, over the course of his ministry and his life, points back to this truth over and over again. He tells us, I am fully, completely, absolutely, 100% a human being, and he does it by way of the very title that he adopts for himself. Jesus is called many names in Scripture, but when he chooses a name for himself, it's always the same one, and it perfectly reveals who he is. It's the title that as you're reading through the life of Jesus, it's really easy to run right on by it without ever noticing it, and the name Jesus chooses for himself is this, Son of Man, Son of Man. Just a couple of examples, they may ring a bell. In Mark chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Here's John uh, chapter 1, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's talking about himself, and I've just given you two examples, but I could give you 83 more of those examples, because 85 times in the New Testament... We read this title, the Son of Man. It is by far Jesus' favorite title for himself. No one else is ever called the Son of Man in the New Testament. And in his lifetime, no one calls Jesus the Son of Man except Jesus. It's totally his own doing. Jesus only used this title for himself, and that's super important. Now, you have to admit that this, this name, Son of Man, is super strange. Like, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't ring a lot of bells for us. It's not intuitive. And so we have to dig a little bit for what this means. And if we turn to the Old Testament, we find this phrase, son of man, pops up about 107 times. And 93 of those times is just in one book, the book of Ezekiel. And there's one text in particular where Ezekiel is having this vision of God sitting on his throne. And God looks like gleaming metal and fire, and there's nothing but brilliance all around. And Ezekiel falls on his face, and he hears a voice. The voice is God talking to him. And he says, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And so God calls Ezekiel son of man, and it's meant to be a declaration of Ezekiel's status compared to the to God in his glory. What God is doing is he's making clear that compared to him, Ezekiel is a bug. He's a worm. Ezekiel is a frail, lowly human being made of flesh. God is reminding him by calling him son of man, I'm God, you are not. I'm eternal, you're a son of man. You're temporal, I'm perfect. You have warts, you have pimples, son of man. So that then is a title that points to our frailness, it points to our weakness, it's a title that humbles us, 
It's a title that speaks of low rank, of low born, of low class, and that's the title. That's the title that Jesus takes for himself. That's amazing. We, we don't do that, do we? We opt for titles that separate us from everybody else. Officer, doctor, judge, president, reverend, right? We love those titles. Jesus chooses intentionally a title that does not separate but connects. His very name draws him alongside us. It doesn't hold us at arm's length, but it brings us close. Son of man means this. I'm just like you. That's what Jesus is really saying. I'm just like you. And I want you to think about what it means if Jesus is just like us. If the God of the universe experiences life with exactly the same thoughts and feelings and emotions and joys and pains and laughter and tears that you do, then it means a few things. First, it means that we have help. No matter what your circumstances are, there are al there's always hope. There's always hope. Some people came in the doors today with a huge burden and weight on your shoulders. You have help today. Jesus is the one pleading your case in front of God himself. Jesus is for you. It means that we're never alone. Even in his nickname for himself, Jesus communicates that we can approach him. He has made himself low. He came down to our level so that we're never on our own. And so no matter where you go, Jesus identifies with you so that we, you can identify with God. Number three, we are understood and known. Jesus has a care for you that's real. He has empathy for your tears because he shed his own. Charles Spurgeon has this great line, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. It's exactly right. No matter your pain, he is able to enter into it and help because he understands. And then finally, we are loved. We are loved. This title, Son of Man, isn't Jesus being self-deprecating. It's Jesus being very intentional. He never wants us to forget who he is. He's human, just like us. But he didn't come into the world to, just to be like us. He came into the world to save us. And to do that, he had to be like us. He came to save. He came to be nailed to a cross and bear the penalty of sin. And after he died for us, look what Paul writes. Christ lives. He came and lived to die, but now he lives. He is wholly a man, and so he faced death just like any man would, like us, and he did it for you. He loves you that much, and then he overcame death. Christ lives. And so, that's, here's, here's what this means. This is, this is incredibly impactful for me, and, and I hope that you'll spend some time just thinking through what this means. The Son of Man title is one that will never, ever go away. Even at the end of the book, this living Jesus is still called the Son of Man. When Stephen 
is at the end of his life and he's being stoned to death and he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Son of God. He calls him the Son of Man. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In Revelation chapter 1, John has this vision of God and God has white hair like wool and his eyes are like flames of fire and his voice is like the roar of the waters, but John knows who this is. It's Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, he's like a son of man. It means that Jesus will be the son of man forever. He'll be a human being forever. He will never, ever go back to being fully and only God like he once was. But he will always and forever be fully and wholly human at the same time as he's fully and wholly God. Do you remember um, that Jesus, after he resurrected, he had to prove to his disciples that it was really him? Um, His body was just so unbelievable to to them, his resurrected body. uh, They could tell it was Jesus, but they, they weren't sure that it was Jesus. And so he had to convince them. He had to give them many proofs. He did this over a period of 40 days. And what did he do with them? He pointed to his scars to prove who he was, the scars in his hand, his feet, his side, even after being resurrected and exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus had scars. See, you and I, when we think about getting to heaven, we think about the great, the great thing that we will have new bodies and all of our scars will be gone, we'll have no blemishes, we'll be perfect, all the scars of this life are gone, and so when we talk about there being no scars in heaven, Oh, we love that, and it's true, but it's not really true, is it? No, there will be scars in heaven. It's just that the only one wearing them will be the person who bled and died for us. Jesus will bear his human title forever. Likewise, he'll bear his human scars forever, and they will be a consistent reminder for all of eternity of his great love for us. Peter said it this way, by his stripes we are healed. His scars will remain forever. Ours will be forever removed. Now, I jumped the gun a little there, and I jumped a little too far in the story, because how are we in heaven already if Jesus is just a holy man, is just holy a man like us? Well, although Jesus is holy a man, he's not only holy a man. There's something else that Paul tells us here about Jesus. This is the second phrase that we're going to look at today. It's just this, son of God. That's what Paul writes about Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. He's wholly human, but he's also the son of God. It means that he's also wholly other. To explain that, I need to go back to the son of man title in the Old Testament. And as you dig around the Old Testament for insights into this title, the instances always refer to somebody who is low, who is humble, who is a bug, right? Lowly flesh, always, except for one instance place. There's one exception where this title is used in a little different way that didn't quite make sense at the time. It's in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and the title here isn't used to put somebody in their place. It's actually used in the context of exaltation and glory. Here's the scene. Daniel is having a strange vision of God around his throne much like Ezekiel did 
He sees God as high and exalted, sitting on his throne. His hair is like white, like wool. His voice is like thunder. And the strange part of the vision is that there's somebody next to God. And that's the twist in this vision that he has. He saw in the clouds of heaven next to God, someone like a son of man. Now, here's what's even more puzzling. In verse 14, this son of man is given dominion and glory. He's given a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion and kingdom will be everlasting. It will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. And the curious part of this for Daniel and for Jewish scholars for centuries after this is how is this possible? How can a son of man, a human being with warts and pimples ever be elevated to this kind of position next to God? Here's human flesh, the son of man who is a low bug who is next to the great and glorious God. How is it that a son of man can sit next to God himself as if he were a son of God? Surely that can't be possible. And the question was still pondered in Jesus' day. A Jewish teaching was that no human could ever, ever share God's glory. In fact, to be so audacious as to claim that you were anywhere close to God's level in the Jewish culture meant the death penalty. The Jewish people were the last group on earth that would ever entertain a human being being God himself. If you came on the scene and claimed this kind of thing, you would immediately be tagged a liar and you would immediately be on the chopping block for claiming what only belongs to God. On the other hand, they also realized that the promised Messiah that would come would be from the line of David. Thus, he would be human. And somehow, this human, this Messiah, would share in God's glory. They just didn't see how those two were possible, how they connected together. How can a human being be exalted next to God? At Christmas time, we use this uh, fancy word called incarnation. Incarnation. And it's the incarnation that Jewish scholars never considered. They never knew to consider it. No one could have ever conceived that God would actually become a man. But when the angel came to Mary, she said this The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Holy. Oh, the word, the word holy, we use it uh, so often that it gets muddy. The, the word itself just means to separate or to set apart or to put in the category of other. It is to say this, hey, 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 we don't use those dishes every day. No, no, no. Those dishes are separated. They, they live in that cabinet over there. They're other. They're holy. They're only for when Aunt Claire comes over. Or this, that's my toothbrush, thank you very much. Once I put it in my mouth, it's set apart for my mouth. I don't want your bacteria and mine dancing together in my mouth. It is holy, it is other, okay? Or this, that's my wedding dress. I'm not gonna run five miles in my wedding dress. I'm not gonna work out in my wedding dress. I have other clothes 
for that. Holy is something that is set apart, something that is other. Now, in a religious sense, here's where we muddy the waters. We think holiness is about our performance. It's when I reach some level of religious purity, then, then I will be holy. Here's the truth. Holiness happens not because of our performance, but because of God's proclamation. Let me say that again. Holiness happens not because of our performance, but because of God's proclamation. Holiness is a gift. Holiness is received. It's not achieved. Our practice of holiness, absolutely. We can can live in to the holiness that we've gotten, but the holiness is the result of God first proclaiming that we're holy. And holiness then can only happen when God shows up. And look what happens in Luke chapter 1. God showed up in an infant, in a baby, in a manger. Holiness showed up in the Son of God. Throughout his life, just like his name pointed to his humanness, Son of Man, it was the actions of Jesus that would point to his holiness, Son of God. Jesus was completely other in the things that he did. Let me give you just one example. Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. He was with his disciples, and they're experienced fishermen. They've been out on the sea thousands of times before, and a storm comes up. Now, these guys knew what they were doing out on the sea, but this particular storm was so bad that they began to fear for their lives. These experienced sailors began to be afraid of the wind and the waves, so much so that they thought they were were going to die. Jesus is actually asleep in the front of the boat, in the middle of the storm. And so they go and wake him up, and they say, we're dying here. Would you, would you do something? And it says in the text that, that Jesus got up, and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. And in that moment, the wind and the sea obeyed, and the waters became as smooth as glass. Ancient cultures viewed the sea above everything else of all the other forces in the world as the unstoppable force. The sea was uncontrollable by any power that they knew. Only a God would be able to control the wind and the waves. And here's Jesus with a word, a word, a word, calming the sea. Jesus exercises this kind of power, and as he does it, He doesn't call on any authority to do it. He doesn't have to pray to any God to do it. He doesn't invoke any power to do it. He just says in his own words, peace, be still. And the sea is silent. Jesus doesn't just have power. Jesus is power itself. Anyone or anything that has power only has it because it's on loan from Jesus himself. And the disciples are witnessing all of this in the boat. And the text says that they were afraid of the storm, right? You know what the end of the story says? It says that they were filled with great fear, mega 
fear. They're even more fearful after the wind and the waves calm down than they were before because just seconds before, they were in a storm. But now, they're watching a power that's bigger than the storm. The storm was a power that they could not control, but Jesus could. And now they realize they have even less control with Jesus than they had with the storm. And the disciples understood that this kind of power not only meant that Jesus was over the storm, but Jesus was also over them. His holiness and his power put Jesus in a category by himself. He's holy. He's holy other. And it means that he is holy over everything, and he's holy over you. And here's the twist today. When I say he's over you, he's over me, we push back on that. I agree with Joel earlier. We're red-blooded Americans, right? I I don't need anyone over me. I'm doing quite well on my own. Thank you very much. Here's the truth today. You need him to be over you. I'll go one step further. You'll want him to be over you. If Jesus isn't over you, then the storm in your life always wins. Always. If Jesus isn't over you, then the sin, the stains in your life win every time. If Jesus isn't over you, then you have to figure out a way to save yourself. If Jesus isn't over you, then you have to figure out the jacked up thing called life on your own, by yourself. If Jesus isn't over you, Death will own you. If Jesus isn't over you, you will be a slave in this life. But, but, if he is, you'll be free and live as he lives. Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus saying to his followers before he ascends to heaven, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You know, when I'm tempted to try to control my life, here's what I need to recognize. It's not really me that has control. I don't have all authority on the earth, in heaven. It's not me. We want control of our seas and our storms. Nevertheless, Jesus is over it all. It's what we need. And it's ultimately what we want. Jesus is this servant, this lowly servant, who is also the Son of God, who is nevertheless the Son of God. And he comes and he stands before God, and he also stands before impetuous, entitled little girls that us humans can be. And he just says, as you wish. As you wish. But what he really means is I love you. And the greatest day of your life, the most amazing day of your life, will be the day that you realize that you love him back. God, we thank you that Jesus is a man. Nevertheless, he is the son of God. It means he is for us, but he also means he is over us. And my, do we need that. Let him be today over us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All the people said.